This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 166 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and given I was born at the tail end of the 1970s, I know a lot of comedy songs about Hitler. He only has one ball apparently. He does, it's true. Uh-huh. And he was true. a twerp. He was balmy, so is his army. Did you watch a lot of British television with your granddad in the 1970s <laughs> and 80s, I think would be the question. I mean, yes I did. Oh, thank you, you've solved it. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this weekend in a queue at home base I pulled a small branch out of my cleavage and it was really awkward for everyone. I'm going to need more information on what the designation of small is in this context. I would say it was about what's that? I think that's twig. I think that's twig rather than branch. Yeah. Mm. Was there a bird on it in a nest? It had leaves attached to it um, which is why I upgraded it to uh, (laughs) branch. Yeah, well, I was guard. I was doing the the Sisyphean task of cutting my hedge, which I've been doing for like a month. And because I'm quite short and garden is quite high up, I uh, or a lot of it is, I tend to find a lot of greenery down my front over the course of the day. And I was in home base queuing, and I looked, and I just saw this little green thing, and I pulled it, and it just kept coming, <laughs> and it had leaves on it. And then I was looked up, and there was the man behind me was just looking. And I was just holding it. And then I thought, I don't know what to do with it now, which is a bit weird. So I just kind of put it in my basket, (laughs) really embarrassed and just left it there. I guess that could actually have been a bit more meta than we first realised, that if you pulled a small branch of home base out of your cleavage while in home base. Yeah. Uh, A a friend of mine did ask me uh, whether or not they charged me for it. (laughs) I'm Jen Offord and Mickey, related to your facts, I have found myself for, I think, the first time and hopefully the last time on the side of the Daily Mail. Wowzers. I'll tell you for why. This weekend they ran a story about how the left are trying to get Allo Allo cancelled. <laughs> Fuck them! It's all over between us. That's it. No! Later on, I talked to best-selling writer Amanda Prowse about the art of regret, why women are putting their biggest regrets on inner-city billboards, and how to get positive value from a seemingly negative emotion. How do they fit it all on a billboard would be my question. (laughs) Really small writing. (laughs) Really small. I chat to actor and writer Martha Howe Douglas about the new series of Ghosts, among other things. I'm excited. In Journey Off the Blocks, I'll be talking again and possibly endlessly about the Olympics. I I realised the Olympics were over and I'd missed my favourite sporting event in the Olympics. What's that? I don't know if we've talked about this before. It's the modern pentathlon. I love the modern pentathlon. It's the maddest shit in the world. (laughs) Where they make them run and then shoot guns. And then they make them ride a horse they've never met before. And the horse is always going, no, I don't like it. Yeah, they all get thrown off and it's it's amazing. Have you read the news about what happened? No. The coach, I think the German coach, punched the horse. No. (laughs) She's been struck off because the horse wouldn't jump. 
because this is what happens when you introduce a horse to its rider like on the day sometimes they go nah fuck off we're talking about animals that are scared of plastic bags for god's sake (laughs) they are unpredictable and unreliable the horse wouldn't jump refused obviously the the athlete was very upset about this the fuck the coach punched the horse Oh, my God, you've just ruined my favourite Olympic sport for me. We won both gold medals as well. I love the modern pentathlon and the shooting, fun fact for you, because I have obviously done the modern pentathlon, as indeed every Olympic sport. Don't like to talk about it, though. Um, (laughs) Jen, have you ever considered biking across America? I don't like to talk about that either. Um, (laughs) So the thing with the modern pentathlon that's really interesting, I think it's interesting anyway, is that you have to, because you run and then you shoot, like, so your adrenaline kind of, like, goes up and down. You have to, like, learn how to breathe properly to control your adrenaline so that when you do the shooting bit you're calm you enough to be able to drive by. say that they're not real guns they're like laser guns but so that you're calm enough to be able to hit the targets because otherwise if your adrenaline's really high you can be like all over the place i love the modern pentathlon it's amazing oh well they go to 2024 i'll come around your house and we'll watch it looking forward to it and diversion over what did we watch in rated or dated well, Terry, I'm glad you asked. This week we watched 1991's The Commitments. But first, rubbish numbers, greenhouse gases and tiny but inspiring feet. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where you'll find us bereft, just sat on the sofa in our pants scratching until August the 24th when the Paralympics begin. I miss constant sport already. Yeah. And also just the prolific good news stories that is the olympics the joy the heartwarming content i I feel like we needed that but i'll I'll come back to that in journey off the blocks later so uh you know for now let's stick with misery (laughs) okay (laughs) this week we're back to the and i am loathe to say favorite so let's go with horrifically ever pressing and unresolved issue of rape conviction statistics yeah i'm glad you opted out a favorite there jeff yeah I mean, obviously, what I meant was it's something we talk about a lot. (laughs) So, of course, because we talk about it a lot, you'll know from previous episodes of the podcast, the news, and most likely if you've ever had the misfortune of reporting a sexual crime to the police, that historically the victims of these crimes have been quite hard-pressed to get any kind of justice. Yep. So much so that the government was forced to apologise for systemic failings after the publication of its review of the criminal justice system's handling of rape cases in England and Wales earlier this year. And I did talk about that on the podcast at the time as well. In fact, and again, these statistics will not be news to you, suspects were charged in just 3% of rape cases in England and Wales in 2019 to 20, and just 2% resulted in a conviction. And I don't need to tell you that this is not a good look for the legal system (laughs) of England and Wales. No, it's not a great look at all. It's bad, isn't it? It's, It's a bad look. So adding to that, the Labour Party has now revealed that analysis of these statistics also shows a huge discrepancy in conviction rates in different parts of the country. So they've done this in two ways. They've analysed it on a sort of county basis, but also on the like 14 different areas that the CPS covers as well. But we're talking about the counties here. So according to analysis based on last year's Crown Prosecution Service figures and reported by The Times, conviction rates range from 94.4% in Gloucestershire. That's pretty good. Good, right? Yeah. To... 
46.7% in Warwickshire. No, that's that's not great. No, no. And not only this, but there's also wild variation in the average time it took to get a prosecution. So moving to Wiltshire now, on average, a victim could expect to wait 231 days between the police passing the case to the CPS and a decision being made. That's still quite a long time, isn't it? It does sound like a lot, doesn't it? Is that similar to you growing a baby? It's like two thirds of a year, isn't it? So yes, I'd, yeah. In Sussex, if you thought that sounded like a lot, how's 474 days for you? I don't like it, Jen. That's how it is for me. I think it's too long. That's a lot more than a year, isn't it? It is a lot more than a year, yeah. Yeah. It's not all bad news. Oh, thank God. (laughs) And when I say not all bad news, it's still not great news. So (laughs) according to the stats, the conviction rate for rape suspects increased by 4% last year. However, when the rate of prosecutions is so low, there is still clearly much, much more to be done. As numbers go, four isn't massive anyway, right? It's not, is it? Like four on top of two, Mm. I'm making that. I don't even think it is 6% because it's kind of like... So that 2% number is 2% of all reported cases. Yeah. Whereas this is of the prosecutions... And the prosecutions are really fucking low. So. Yeah. This is why so. I don't like maths. It's just really shit for women. It's, yeah. <laughs> a CPS spokeswoman told The Times that they were, and I quote, committed to improving every aspect of how offences of violence against women and girls are handled and working with other agencies to reduce the unacceptable gap between reports of these devastating crimes and victims seeing justice. I don't want to, like, obviously... This is quite a nuanced situation. There are, you know, we've got an underfunded police force. I'm sure we've got an underfunded CPS. So when I say this, I don't mean it flippantly. But what I will say is, oh, I think you need to work harder. <laughs> That's what I, think. I would have allowed you to say that flippantly because they absolutely need to work harder on every single level here. Yeah. Yeah. So I quite often find myself thinking about a fairly throwaway, at the time, hilarious comment A.L. Kennedy made to us a couple of years back when we interviewed her for The Little Snake. And we were talking about a potential future chat and she said, oh, by then, half the world will be on fire and the other half underwater. Well, yeah, I live in Walthamstow, which was massively affected by the recent London flooding, meaning the last few days of pretty much constant torrential rain has left people understandably twitchy. And indeed, since July the 12th this year, several European countries have been affected by floods. Some were catastrophic, causing deaths and widespread damage. On the flip side, Athens is besieged by fire. Last week, in some parts of Greece, the mercury hit 47 degrees centigrade, with thermal cameras on drones recording the ground temperature in downtown Athens at 55 degrees centigrade. That's the actual temperature of hell, isn't it? (laughs) That is hellish. That is Dante's (laughs) Inferno. Wow. By Wednesday, entire tracts of suburban forest on the Greek capital's northern fringes had gone up in flames. And the past five years have been the hottest on record since 1850. The reason? Climate change. The culprit? Well, us. It is unequivocal, and that is a quote opening the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's new report, produced by hundreds of the world's top scientists and signed off by all of the world's governments 
The report says that ongoing emissions of warming gases could also see a key temperature limit, and that is the 1.5 degrees centigrade danger limit agreed in the 2015 Paris Climate Deal, agreed by almost every nation on Earth, by the way. And that looks like it could be broken in just over a decade. Now, I've watched enough David Attenborough, you know I love a monkey, Jen, <laughs> love mm. a monkey, to not be surprised by this news, really, but it doesn't make it any less horrific and terrifying. Human activity is unequivocally affecting every corner of the planet's land, air and sea. So the last time we saw heating this fast was at least 2,000 years ago, probably more like 100,000 years. The last time we saw temperatures this high was at least 6,500 years ago. Sea levels are on the rise at a rate not seen for at least 3,000 years, with the ocean's acidic levels at rates that haven't been seen for 2 million years. Two million years. This is bad shit. And clearly, this bad shit is already hurting people everywhere across the globe. But, as with David Attenborough, there is hope. Hooray. And the scientists involved say if we can cut global emissions in half by 2030 and reach net zero by the middle of this century, we can halt and possibly even reverse the rise in temperatures, which is great news. For political leaders, who seemingly are the heaviest of sleepers, the report is another in a long line of wake-up calls, right? However, it does come really close to November's COP26 Global Climate Summit taking place in Glasgow, which means it carries extra weight. Because we don't need hope, what we need is action. Uh, I tried, by the way, to look at some comments from climate change deniers, so I could, you know, wittily slap them down. But they made me so angry, I wanted to slab my own head through a cupboard door. So instead, I'll just say, this shit is real, and we need to act now. I don't believe you, Mickey. How can it be real? There's no evidence of it. Oh, no, wait. Would you like some good news, Mick? Yeah, please, because my head hurts from all the cupboard. Okay, so you know Barbie, right? Yeah, about yay high, big boobs, can't stand up properly, right? Yeah, 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 she's my role model. (laughs) Okay, well, Toymaker Mattel is set to release six new iterations of the legendary doll to honour women working in science, technology, engineering and maths. And the new crop includes vaccinologist Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert, who is the designer of the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. I've got some of Dame Sarah Gilbert in my veins. I do not, but I have someone else's vaccinology in my veins. Um, So the doll comes with Gilbert's red hair and glasses and wears a trouser suit and shirt. Smart. Yeah, very smart. And Dame Sarah said, I am passionate about inspiring the next generation of girls into STEM careers and hope that children who see my Barbie will realise how vital careers in science are to help the world around us. And Dame Sarah's Barbie joins the likes of Nicola Adams, Dina Asher-Smith, Rosa Parks, and of course Maya Angelou, which you'll recall Hannah chatted about a while back. And that is just to name a few of their special release dolls, which are all excellent their feet do still look suspiciously small to me, though. Who'd have thought that Barbie would be our good news story twice? And both worthwhile entrants as well, mm, because, yeah. like, obviously, your big names like Rosa Parks and Maya Angelou, I love that they're bringing in scientists that are working today into the fold. Mm. That's great. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? 
Sexism of the Week. It's that time of the week when my patients get sorely tested by sexism's outrageous stamina. (laughs) Back at the end of June, Sue Mitchell and Sarah McDermott of the BBC reported how women staying in quarantine hotels in the UK were being sexually harassed by guards working for security company G4S. Great, meant to be safe, meant to be quarantining. But 16 women reported such harassment to the BBC, with one saying a guard mimed having sex while they were alone in a lift, and another explaining how a guard asked her for a hug as he tried to step into her room. So private security companies, including G4S, have been hired by the government to ensure that hotel guests observe quarantine rules, with travellers obliged to quarantine in a hotel after returning from countries on the UK's red list where COVID rates are really high. And those in quarantine spend 10 nights in their room. They're allowed out for daily exercise only when accompanied by one of these guards. Also, any deliveries they might order are brought to their room by one of these guards. At the time, Harriet Wistrich from the Centre for Women's Justice described the allegations made by the women as really concerning. She said, essentially, these women are in detention. They don't have freedom of movement at all. So there are particular human rights duties that go with that. The state is responsible for their safety. If they're at risk of being sexually abused, there's potentially a human rights violation there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Mickey, I hear you saying. This happened months ago, though. Why are you still wanging on about it? It's bound to have been sorted, right? Well, sure. Following the BBC report, the Department of Health and Social Care changed procedures at the end of July so that women quarantining alone in UK hotels would have female guards, when possible, and if female guards were unavailable, women would be escorted by two male guards, and this is a quote, with each guard chaperoning the other to ensure appropriate behaviour. Well, that's how the DHSC put it. I'm not so sure on that last bit. But, you know, at least they're trying. So well done, everyone, right? Right? How's your hollow laughter, Jen? Ha, 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 ha. Is that any good? Yeah, that's pretty good. Because, yeah, just two days ago, another woman was sexually harassed in hotel quarantine, despite those new rules designed to prevent it. Indeed, more women have come forward to the BBC to report harassment since the DHSC took steps to fix the problem. It's it's not fixed then, is it? (laughs) West Midlands Victims Commissioner Nikki Brennan said... People who are quarantining in hotels at the orders of the government should not have to feel unsafe when following those rules. This would appear to be a problem across the country with security staff in these hotels. It's worrying for anybody, especially lone women, that they could be treated in this way. How have G4S, like, like how how do they exist still? They're never in the news for good reasons, are they? (laughs) No. I mean, I just go back to when they... uh, the obvious example, if we're going to talk about the Olympics, is um, when they just didn't turn up to do the job they've been paid to do at the Olympics, and so we had to have a fucking army like, wow. doing security Great at London though. 2012. <laughs> really good, really good. Looks really good when you've got members of the armed forces. So actually your... what your question is, mm. Jen, is why is our government consistently employing people who are not fit for the job? That is another good question, Yes. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined on the Zoom by Martha Howe-Douglas. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Actress, writer and one-sixth of the writing team behind one of our favourite things on the telly, Ghosts, which is back, not as we're speaking now, but it will be when people listen to this, they will have had the opportunity to watch the first episode. 
Now, we had Lawrence Rickard on the podcast back in November, and he was talking about writing ghosts. Yeah. And then I spoke to Katie Wicks about her book back in the spring. And as we spoke on the Friday, filming was going to start on the Monday. And now I'm talking to you when it's out. It's out. I wondered what part of those three bits of the process are actually the most satisfying? Is it the creating? Is it the making? Or is it sitting back and watching it go out into the world? It's a hard question. I think it's all of it. I, I enjoy the process so much. We've all worked together for such a long time now that that kind of creating of the series is, is, is such a fun element and exciting to explore different stories and, and backstories and all the things that the, the fans seem to love about learning more about the ghosts as we're now into series three we can delve a little bit deeper. So that, that process I love, and I write with Larry, and he's just a brilliant, brilliant writer. I learned so much from him. That's the six of us sitting down in a room and, and you know, bashing out stories. is always fun. I mean, with the, with actually, this series we wrote completely in lockdown, mm. so we wrote all of Zoom. So we missed that being in the room together element. But I'm a performer. I, I went to drama school. That's what I love to do. But the writing has been something that I've done since, you know, we've all worked together. And I do really enjoy it. But the performing is, is my is my bag. And then obviously, you know, people enjoying it, sitting at home and enjoying it is, is so, so satisfying. And the feedback that we get is just so lovely and so kind of broad. You know, people talk about watching this show with their kids, their parents, their grandparents. Mm. And to strike a, a, you know, a chord across... All those, all those age groups is so satisfying for us. It's, it makes us very happy. It's incredibly impressive achievement in that sense that it is something that I can watch with my nephew, my mum, you know, yeah. across three generations and everybody be laughing That's at right. it. Obviously, you've just mentioned this is your COVID series of ghosts. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's the only COVID series of ghosts. <laughs> I really hope that we don't go back there. How different was it? Did did you find yourself getting into the swing of the difference quite quickly? Or did it always feel slightly alien to be writing yeah. separately, but also filming? And presumably writing in a way that you couldn't, you had to have in mind how many people you might be able to have in a room at any one time. Absolutely did have to have that in mind yeah I mean Larry and I we live quite far apart so you know back in the days when people used Skype do you remember Skype um we used to write write on Skype and now it's Zoom but yeah that was kind of everybody was in the same situation everybody was you know seeing people on screen whether it was you were doing quizzes at home or you were working from home so yeah it was weird but we kind of we were so determined that we wanted to do it and and we wanted to be able to film it and you know that we kind of just pushed on filming was was odd yeah we were tested every day and we were masked up until you know we started filming so rehearsals you were in a mask or rather Larry and I weren't in masks because of our prosthetic makeup mm-hmm. we had to have big visors on which were actually I think better than having the masks on but yeah so we were we were very aware that we couldn't sort of hang out in the same way that we that we would be able to normally we had what's called cohorts so when we when you were in a scene with somebody the, the production team tried to do it so that if you were in a scene with those people you'd be with them all week right so 
you'd you'd finish those scenes together and then you'd move on to a different cohort so that was odd because we were kept apart mm. <laughs> like, like we we're all diseased like you you get stay away from them you can't talk to them but yeah we got through it we only had one covid illness and that was our covid supervisor <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why i'm laughing but <laughs> <laughs> so, but actually to get through 10 weeks like we did the, the the one blessing i think was that the nation was still in lockdown when we were filming so nobody could go out the weekends and and get anything uh, nasty so nothing was brought back and i think that was our saving grace i really do but we got through it and i think i think the crew and everybody they were so dedicated to making it to the finish line that everybody really respected the rules of the sanitizing and the testing and the masks and you know everybody had had the kind of the goal mm. in their mind and 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 luckily we got through it and that's what we're about to see on tv yeah the bbc have sent me the first three episodes and it's oh, just yeah. yeah it's just delightful to have it back oh, on the telly although the only problem with watching it in previews is then I don't get to watch it with somebody else quite yeah. I mean I probably will do that anyway can we talk about Fanny Button while I have you of course <laughs> firstly I need to know whose idea that name was because it took me about I would say about three episodes before I thought oh shit that's Fanny Button yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I actually don't know whose uh, idea it was completely but it, it comes out this sort of spawning of, of uh, ideas that we have in a, in a room together. And I think that that's the most productive way, really, because there's six brains on on everything. And so we get we we get through stuff quite quickly, opposed to somebody just writing a script on their own. You've got all these other brains working together with you. So it's so helpful. But yeah, they, we'd, we'd obviously thought of Button House. We'd got Button House and then we were talking about the characters for and yeah, Fanny Button came out of I mean, our conversations can go quite blue uh, <laughs> quite quickly actually. So I mean, it's no surprise. But yeah, I, I get tweets about that. Like, is is that what it is? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, do you think that's what it is? But we did uh, we did have to have a little bit of a Fanny reference check and and rein in the reference check um, in the series because you're only allowed so many Fanny references uh, mm. <laughs> per episode. So we just let rein them in. They can't come thick and fast actually when we're writing. So yeah, you do have to be mindful of that so that you're not, you know, not taking the piss with the, with the uh, Fanny references too much. Yeah. Obviously, you are the only regular woman in the in the yeah. team. Does that mean that you got your pick? of which women you wanted to play or was it always funny for you oh in the in ghost, in ghost yeah yeah I, well yes I mean I did get my pick but I because I'd just come from Yonderland the show that we did on Sky together I was sort of the Alison character in Yonderland I was the sort of the woman that vended off the idiots so to go from that sort of straight character I really wanted something more extreme and and <laughs> funny it's become way extreme I mean I, she, yeah she's definitely crossing a line now of extreme but um but she's so fun to play I just love playing her and I think it was the natural the natural character for me to gravitate to for sure but I'm so glad I did because I, I love I love her she's become I was wondering this when I watched it. I actually find her more tolerable, which See makes you. me wonder whether you're doing that deliberately or I've just no. become accustomed to her. I'm really not. I'm actually a bit aware that people aren't that that big a fan of her because she's so annoying. But but that's so fun, you know. I play I play that, and I you know. I, I, but I I do think there's more love for her now 
than in the first series for sure but she's kind of gone ridiculous I have to say I, I do have to keep in check my gurning because I'm like sometimes my faces are just stupid but yeah it, it's just fun but yeah I mean I'm glad you're I'm glad you're fighting her tolerable. I'm glad I was thinking your face must hurt after that no. after some of the extraordinary <laughs> positions you just have to hold it in for such a long time it really does my neck sometimes I'm like oh god but what, what the uh, our makeup lady lovely Linda who does my uh, prosthetics for me when I was doing the first and second series I had a piece on my forehead you know sort of more wrinkles uh, eye bags uh, like big old eye bags and then I had these jowls and <laughs> um, it takes so long to do the makeup mine and Larry's for Robin it's just so, so long and Linda said to me last year she went, I think we could do away with the, the jowls she said, because you kind of create your own chins <laughs> Linda <laughs> But she's right, I do. So, and actually it saved us a good 40 minutes of makeup, so I'll take that, to be honest. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you do. there's a lot of face gymnastics involved, yeah. Now, you've always, because obviously you, with Horrible Histories and with Bill, you are, yeah. find yourself in a lot of the unpleasant corsetry <laughs> that women were forced into in those days. Is that still a pleasure for you, or is that a, a real like, is- physical pain? No, it's not a pleasure. It, uh, I mean, it's definitely, it really helps you with your physicality, for sure. You know, the, the, the sort of structured element of that dress. And it's a corset and then a, a various uh, amount of underskirts and then this, this dress. But um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go without the corset because it's, um, I think it's really important for the, for the, the physicality of the character. But no, it's not pleasant at all, especially when you've had a year off and then you come back and they've, they pull you into that on the first morning. You're like, oh, God, 10 weeks of this. You just don't eat that much uh, in the day You eat when you when you uh, get home. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it looks horrific to, to, uh, to, to me to be wearing something like that. Talking about picking roles, then, I do have a question. With Bill, obviously, you had the late, great Helen McCrory was your Queen Elizabeth I. Was that an active decision that you were going to give it to her or, or how did that yeah. come about? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I loved playing Queen Elizabeth I, but I think for for the for the purpose of a film, it was great to have somebody you know known come in and play that iconic role. And I loved I loved playing, and so yeah, I was I was more than happy. And, and Helen, Helen was just exquisite, really. She was she was, well, she was an amazing actress. We all know that. But coming in and giving her spin on that that mm. character, it, and it was so off the wall weird sometimes that you were like what the but it just worked so brilliantly and I think only only she could have done that because it's been so done that character that she just came and bought this fresh spin on it um, and it was perfect yeah I actually I think it that that's like a prime example of of why comedy is not really considered to be great acting yeah because you know, if you look back at Helen McCrory's roles, I'd say that's actually quite high up of one of her genuinely, like, really brilliant ones. But because it's comedy, people never think of that. They always want to, they want something that's all about the sort of the angst and the drama. (laughs) There's been a lot of comparisons between what you do, the horrible, I don't like calling you the horrible histories, guys, because that's not right. But you don't really have an effective name together, do you? Our fans on, on Twitter and stuff, they call us the idiots. Which will take, um, but no, talk about this. Can, can you come up with a, a you know, group name? And it kind of feels, it feels like it, it's a bit naff now. You know, we are what, what people know us yeah. for. And 
yeah, of course we've moved on from horrible histories, but I don't think we'll ever get away from that's where we began. I mean, yeah. we're all in our 40s now. So, I mean, it's a bit weird. But, you know, listen, that's what brought us together. And I had such fond memories of those days. We all do. We still talk about them now. And, it, uh, yeah, it was the beginning of us. So it's totally understandable. And because it's repeated all the time, mm. even kids that grew up with us who have now got mortgages and babies, yeah. new kids coming. So I think I don't think we'll ever get away from it entirely. <laughs> You quite often get compared to Monty Python, I think, for, you know, for a a number of reasons, not least that you all play a lot of roles in stuff. And also it's a similar style of humour. But I also think quite often you guys remind me of the stuff you do reminds me of the League of Gentlemen, also because you do the dressing up of the mini roles. But because I've seen like both some of you guys and some of the League of Gentlemen guys talking about where their comedic inspiration came from. And with them, it's not always something that was meant to be funny. And I remember reading Jim Howick saying that one of the inspirations for Ghosts was the Danny Dyer episode of Who Do You Think You Are? Which was genuinely one of the most unexpectedly hilarious things ever on television. So I just wondered, what is it that makes you laugh? What do you, where do you get your inspiration from? I love rubbish TV, like rubbish. Do you you remember that um, series, The Hotel? Did you remember that on Channel 4? It was like a fly-on-the-wall documentary. So no. it was a, like the real office. Oh, okay. I'm a big observer. And and I, I think that's, that's a, it's quite a good steer, is that it's not necessarily about what's boom, boom, hilarious in front of you. I like to observe sort of quirks in people. And I, yeah, the, I can find humour in, in strange places like that. But there was a guy in that who was called Mark. I think he was the, the manager. God, he was great. And I just loved that show. It wasn't supposed to be funny. Yeah. But that was one of our touchstones, actually, when I was talking, when we were talking about ghosts, what I was saying was, what about something like that? You know, that sort of, it's not supposed to be funny, but it's funny because, you you know, you've got those characters. But, yeah, I, I mean, growing up, I used to watch, you know, French and Saunders, Victoria Ward, all of those. They, they were my kind of idols. Uh, and I watched that with my mom, which is so nice now that we're, you know, we've created a show that, that kids are watching with their parents because that's what I remember when I was young you know being able to sit down as a family and watch things that we all found funny yeah I mean the league I just think is so brilliant and we have got this kind of connection across the board mm. lots of the boards have been in inside number nine and stuff and they're very complimentary to us and and we just think they're amazing so yeah I mean any comparison is, is a very flattering comparison. You're also in another one of television's current great sitcoms recently you were in motherland oh i was yeah playing somebody horrible and racist yeah vile yeah racist mum <laughs> <Tom. laughs> character name are you drawn towards characters that aren't nice or or uh, is it actually quite hard to do that to find that horribleness in you yeah uh no i mean i was asked to to audition for that and yeah i love that show i think it's a great show and it you know they're they're quite similar in the fact that they've worked together a while and and they've bonded but i have to say coming in i mean natalie cassidy and i were the two kind of guest artists in that in that episode and as a group we all really bonded i think it was the fact that it was it was kind of still lockdown and the nature of the episode was a school trip on on a coach (laughs) when i was driving to work on the first day I was thinking the driver was like oh you know yeah you're going to be on that coach all day and I'm thinking why did I agree to this <laughs> like hell. <laughs> but it was pretty much hellish but um but yeah it was like four days on a coach with a load of kids 
but you know that we were on a school trip but they were so lovely so generous all of them Diane Morgan they were they were all amazing and Anna Maxwell Martin is a phenomenon she's just brilliant but they were just lovely I saw Tanya uh, Moody at the the awards the other day she, they're just a lovely lovely bunch of women um and really supportive and love you know love what I do and mm. and I, I love them but I think it's a really clever show this has been absolutely great to chat to you Martha can you give us any idea of what's coming up for you either ghost related or or uh, not yeah, ghost related series now so the three starts on the 9th of August we are hoping to do some more so that's where we are but yeah we've, we've all got our own little projects going but we're very much hoping to be able to do more ghosts please do another Christmas special uh, because that one was uh, so yeah. glorious <laughs> I don't know how deliberate, I mean, obviously you couldn't possibly know what everyone's Christmas was going to be like, given that that it was really last minute, but it felt kind of necessary. Yeah. I do have one last question, which we've asked all of all of you ghosts, gang. If you had a ghost, if you had to have one of those ghosts haunt your house, well, who would it be? Who would it be? <laughs> I'd probably go for Pat just because he's always up for a laugh and he always wants to do stuff. I mean, he's a little bit annoying, but you can kind of tell him to shut up and he, he you know, it kind of bounces off him. So, yeah, I'd, I'd go for Pat because he's always up for a game. Yeah. <laughs> Pat is lovely. I, I said Robin because he uh, is kind of the same as having a pet. That's right. But you didn't have to clean up after. And then actually, that's kind of what the Christmas episode turned into, wasn't it? But yeah, I think Mary has her definite upsides as well. Uh, So utterly daft. But uh, yeah, well, fingers crossed if if Fanny Button continues to go on the upward trajectory of likeable, the next time I interview a ghost person, I might say Fanny. Check in next year. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by international best-selling author and firm favourite on this show, Amanda Prowse. Amanda, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. I love it when you say international best-selling author. It just makes me feel great. I've spent my morning cleaning hair from the bathroom plug. (laughs) So it's nice to just be elevated in that way, even if it's just for those few seconds. You have been busy with some very interesting and really touching billboard posters that have popped up in various UK cities. Please tell me about your campaign, The Art of Regret, what it is and how it came about. Well, you've made it sound like I'm actually out there putting them up when you say I've been busy with my ladder and my glue bucket. (laughs) Amanda's chatting to me from some scaffolding. (laughs) (laughs) I'd quite like to do that, but I'm so cat-handed at anything, they'd probably end on upside down. But no, the campaign is The Art of Regret. I was writing my latest novel, Waiting to Begin, and it's largely about shame and what it's like when shame can sort of get set in your mind in your teenage years, usually. And I think for most of us, that's very often when it sort of starts to take hold, when maybe we're sexually adventurous and we don't know if we're allowed to be, Mm -hmm. and it seems that our certainly my generation I'm in my 50s our male counterparts were sort of lauded for their sexual adventurism and it was like wow what a lad you know he's doing this and he's snogging at the bus stop and he's had this bird all very derogatory but actually this kind of part of this toxic masculinity this culture that was building this idea that that's what meant to be a man and it meant it was you know it was a really positive thing Mm -hmm. but if a woman or a girl behaved in the same way you were instantly cloaked in shame yeah you know you shouldn't be doing that and you're not allowed the fact that these boys and men were sleeping with women and girls almost seemed to be slightly irrelevant it's like hang on a minute um you know and very often you were in quite a vulnerable position it just didn't seem to be be factored in and i think it goes you know from then onwards really Uh, and shame and regret are very very closely linked 
And we always talk about, don't we, the green-eyed monster, how devastating and damaging it is to carry jealousy or envy around inside you. And actually, I think regret is very, very similar. And we just came up with this idea to do a poster campaign in major cities in the UK where women can go onto a website, which I'll give you later, and they can log their regret. And then a few are going to be selected and put on these massive posters in major cities, anonymously, of course. Uh But it's really empowering uh, for two reasons. First of all, the women who are sharing their regret are saying how cathartic it is. And that's part of our research shows that sharing a regret actually helps you almost, you know, pass it on and get over it. But also that it, it resonates with other women. They're reading these slogans, you know, I put my dreams on hold because someone told me I was stupid. I never followed my dreams because I thought uh, I wasn't capable. Whatever it is, you know, really heart-wrenching, moving, very open conversations that we're having. And they're relating to it. And actually, it just helps move that whole conversation forward. We shouldn't harbour regret. It does cause you damage if you let it sit in your gut. It's telling, isn't it? You had quite the flood of submissions, right? Like women were just waiting for someone to offer them this opportunity. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, and, and the, the website's still open. We're still picking slogans and there's still going to be another wave of campaigns coming up at the end of the summer. So, you know, everyone can still get involved. But you're absolutely right. We were flooded with it, which made me feel really sad. Mm. The fact that actually it felt easier in some ways to share it anonymously. But the key thing about the campaign, Mickey, is that it's about reframing regret. It doesn't have to be a negative force in our life. We did a lot of research and some of the stats were absolutely mind-blowing. 65% of the women we spoke to said that they lost sleep at least once a week because of a regret. That it hampered them going forward and being brave in decision-making because of something they might have decided in their teens or their 20s or... Yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, that's really, really, that was very upsetting. And it doesn't have to be a huge regret. You know, it doesn't have to be that you've married the wrong partner or, you know, we're in a, a dangerous or damaging relationship. It can be small things like beating ourselves up over our food choices. Yeah. All those little micro regrets that go to build that greater picture of, of us feeling not quite good enough or that we are lacking or that in some ways our life would be better if only we'd chosen x y or z yeah i mean we're chatting on a day where i very much regret the last glass of wine i had last night and even though you know i'm up i'm functioning i kind of made a little joke about it i've been giving myself a really hard time about that decision last time we chatted we talked about depression and about your son's depression and obviously it's something that i've suffered on and off with for most of my life and actually regret that pattern of repetitive, negative, self-focused, ruminative thinking just on and on and on is huge for me. It, it can be really damaging to not let go of something, I think. I absolutely agree. And the thing is that that level of regret, you have no idea that the decisions you've made, the things you did would have led to a different outcome. Mm-hmm. It could have been that the things you decided or or the, the choices you made might have led to a much worse now. Yeah, And I think that and reframing of that is really, really important to say, you know, this is where I am now. Everything that's happened to me and everything I've done and decided has led me to this point. And this is what I've got to work with. And, and actually that regret, it can sort of be like an anchor that holds you fast in the fast flowing river of your life, yeah. can hold you back. And that makes me feel incredibly sad because I think, you know, women are incredible creatures. We have so much opportunity at our fingertips, particularly right now, coming out of lockdown, coming out of the pandemic, where we've been really thinking about life choices, what we want to pursue, Mm -hmm. things we couldn't pursue because we were literally, you know, locked down. 
all this opportunity, how tragic would it be that if what actually held us back and stopped us living our best life right now was something that we can't change that happened in our past? Right, that's really interesting. So obviously when you get the regrets, like, oh, you're just like, oh God, I wish I had a time machine. I wish I could just go back and undo that. So I wondered, do you think time travel would solve regret or lead to more of it? I think it would probably be about the same. Mm. Because I know for me, particularly with, I look at my son's depression and I've constantly, Mickey, thought if I could go back to when, if I could go back to when he was five, six, seven, eight, nine, twenty. When do I want to go back to? And what different choices would I make? Because I'm the same person. And at that stage in my life, the same level of ignorance or lack of education or awareness, I would have made the same decisions and the same choices. All I have got is right now. And I can only deal with going forward, learning everything I've learned along the way. And those regrets, actually, they're education moments. You know, I look back and think I will never do that again because... Or I would do this differently because... Yeah, because obviously regret is clearly a negative emotion, but it has a positive value, I think. It does. And actually, if you think about it, regret is how we learn and how we sort of sort out the muddle in our brain of Mm -hmm. decision-making, bad decision-making, and what we want. You know, so, okay, I might regret, for example, I very much regret staying in a relationship where I wasn't loved, thinking I could change the outcome. If I was nice enough, sweet enough, sexy enough thin enough you know the hostess with the mostess enough I could make that person love me and I stuck at it believing that was true wasted all those years yeah and I constantly that goes round and round in my head first of all because I'm embarrassed by it secondly because I feel humiliated by it and thirdly because it was a waste of those years actually Nikki I'm 53 and where I've ended up is because of what I went through yeah yeah. So I now no longer regret it. I think it taught me how to be more uh, assertive, how to identify good and bad traits within a relationship, respect from a lover, respect from people I love, loving myself. And what I've ended up with is I'm married to a man who's a really, really stable, great mate. He's a wonderful life partner for me because we are we have this equality, not only of feeling, of respect for each other and Mm -hmm. that is key to everything for me and my mental and emotional well-being and actually if I hadn't been through that I don't think I would have arrived here so it was a learning for me. I mean I think that's clear in the stories that the women are sharing when they're submitting their stories to you for the art of regret that some of the stories are just utterly heartbreaking What I really liked, though, was that even though most of them end with a positive note of taking back power, there are a couple where the women acknowledge that, you know, still bothers them. It's still a work in progress. And that also is really good at making you feel like, okay, if I can't just do it immediately, I just have to keep going. Okay, how do I learn from this? How do I sit with it? How do I move on from this? Yeah. And it's part of that honest conversation, which I really love that level of honesty. Um, And actually, our research showed that women between the ages of 16 to 24 tended to think about their regrets daily. And for every decade of life that went on, the period with which you worried about those regrets actually was, was longer. So it really does prove that in this case, and not always, time does help heal. Time does help. I think partly it's because I lose my memory a lot. So maybe at 50, I'm not remembering <laughs> half the things it's I should regret. <laughs> oh, don't. And also, let's face it, some of the things we regret at 16 and 24, much bigger shit's going to come along that you have to worry about. And those <laughs> yeah. things felt like a huge regret. 
<laughs> there goes to the bottom of your worry pile. <laughs> Absolutely. And interestingly, right, I read that over short time periods, we're more likely to regret actions taken and mistakes made. Whereas over long time periods, we're more likely to regret actions we didn't take and missed opportunities like for, for love or working too hard and not spending time with people that we care about. That's an interesting shift. For me, that was indicative of looking for a blame. You know, if I hadn't hmm. qualified, I mean, I, I always say I would have loved to have been a midwife. I would have loved it, Mickey. I would have been brilliant. Just nurturing mothers, mothers-to-be, fertility, which my own journey has been difficult and complex and, and parenthood generally. But I think I would have loved to have done it. And I often say, oh, do you know what? If I'd been born in a different time, had a different education, a different, I could have done that as though it's not my fault. But actually, it's down to me because at any point in my life, even now, I could say, do you know what? I'm going to do it. Yeah. But I, ne- I never did. And so sometimes it's, it's a nice way to negate yourself of the responsibility and put the weight of that decision onto something else, a circumstance, a person, you know, a life incident, rather than take ownership for it and actually either change it, fulfill it, do it or let it go. I think what's hard with regret as well, though, is because as you touched on earlier, it's almost always entangled with another negative emotion, right? So regret and shame or regret and disappointment or regret and guilt. And we focus on them as if they're inseparable. And actually, you can sort of go, right, OK, if I feel guilty about something, then that is something I can at least apologise for. And then maybe the regret will fade. But if you deal with regret on its own, there are certain things you can do to make it better, to make it fade. And Emma Kenny on your website for The Art of Regret has given some really good advice. Could you share a little bit of it with the listeners now? I certainly can. And one thing I will say, Emma Kenny, who is absolutely brilliant, she said something to me uh, just personally that really changed things for me, Mickey. She said, if you look at regret and frame it with that things could have been better, what is it you would be willing to give up in your life now? Oh, that is, oh, she's good. She is good. She's she's a clever clogs and lovely and gorgeous and she can bake. Oh, I know, too much, um, all too much. No, I don't like much. it. No, I don't. Well, I don't like it now. <laughs> She's incredible. But she said, yeah, what, what is it though? So if everything is in the ingredients of your life has brought you to here and you want to get rid of that thing you regretted, what are you willing to give up? Your kids, your partner, yeah. your house, your career, your pets, your parents, your happiness, your joy. It's like, oh no, I, I wouldn't change a thing. And then she said, well, there you go. You wouldn't change a thing. So why are you regretting? And it was like, oh my gosh. For me, that was a real moment of clarity. And you can actually buy tiny Emmas from the website, right? So you can just carry around on your shoulder. Teeny tiny Emmas. Just whisper this advice. Yeah, that that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Oh, I'd love a teeny tiny Emma. She has these salient points. Do not focus on regret, saying that will trigger a sense of loss and doesn't change what's already taken place, which is what she touched on. Do not be ashamed of your regrets because we keep feelings of regret to ourselves, convinced that mistakes are bad, but actually by sharing it, by getting it out, by putting it on a poster in the middle of Edinburgh, Glasgow, Leeds or Manchester, Bristol or London, get it out there, let it go, you know, wave it goodbye. Practice gratitude. Again, what we were just talking about, the fact that we are where we are because of everything that's happened. I think that's a nice one. Mm. This this one I like too. Know that you're human and humans are fallible and we are far right. from perfect. Oh, Mickey. Yeah. You know, that that's it, isn't it? That is it. And, and, and our humanity means we are going to make mistakes and therefore we are licensed to carry regret. Help it to make yourself a better person. If it's you didn't travel, 
travel. You know, maybe you wanted to go to Cambodia and Vietnam when you were 16 and didn't. You can still do things to be involved in the culture, read the literature. You can still itch that itch in so many ways. Mm -hmm. There are things you can do to to educate yourself and 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 plug those gaps if you feel you have them. And and this one, the final one, don't fear regret. You know, don't fear it. Mm -hmm. Don't think it's something you have to hide away. Because actually by fearing it, it becomes much more of a bigger weight for you to carry. And I know that some of the regrets I've carried in my gut were like rocks for so long. And it was so pointless, adding to everything else I had going on. I suddenly thought, why am I doing this to myself? Just let it go. There's so little you can do about it. No one has invented time travel. You're just going to have to deal with this and find a way to move on. I think that thing about writing it down, putting it on a billboard, getting it out. Obviously, we're writers, so words have that power for us. But yeah, I used to I used to set fire to men and that would be if there was a, a dalliance that I felt was still bothering me, that still hurt me, I would write their name on a bit of paper and set fire to it. I've never been so delighted to hear that because when you said you set fire to men, I literally thought you were following around in a nightclub with a bick and some light of it. No, no. that's not what you're talking about. You no. mean a little piece of paper. Love that. Yeah. And I think you can do that with anything. And like sometimes I'd have to set fire to the same bloke 20 times, but I would, I would keep doing this little ritual. And I know it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it's a case of getting it out of your head and into the world so you can say goodbye to it. And it's whatever works for you. Yeah. That's the point. It's whatever works for you. you know, and I do something kind of similar. I mean, I don't set fire to things because I'm not a pyromaniac, <laughs> but I, Stop I do actually... <laughs> Judging, not judging. Judging, I'm judging. But I think also it's writing anything down. There's something about mm. writing it down, Mickey, that makes it sort of, and then crossing it through almost. Definitely. I can, I can recommend some fire, though. It just makes it all a bit more dramatic. <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? So when you got these submissions, and like you say, you're still taking submissions at theartofregret.co.uk, have there been common themes that have cropped up? Very much so. One of the most common themes was that people who had lost people had said they wished they had spent either more time or not had that row mm. or not been impatient or, uh, you know, a million other things, which I completely can relate to. And the strange thing is that I know that in writing that regret, saying I shouldn't have had that row on that one day, there was 364 other days in that year where they probably had harmony and friendship and exactly. love and yeah. kindness. But it's what they were choosing to cherry pick. And, and it really held them back in their grief. You know, that one thing. So it's interesting how we almost use regret as a form of self-flagellation. Mm -hmm. We punish ourselves by choosing to focus on that. That was a very common one. And it was heartbreaking. And I entirely related to it. You know, uh, I lost someone who had dementia very, very close to me. And I can remember the days I didn't go and visit rather than the thousands and thousands of days I did go and visit and sat there and had the same conversation with the countdown tune playing in the background and you know on that constant loop they completely went out of my head and I remembered a couple of days feeling tired and thinking I can't I just can't go today you know I've got to look after the kids I've got to work I just can't do it that still plays on my mind and it's weird how I focus on that because I know she wouldn't exactly exactly and I think it is it's for these events certainly stuff that we regret that we had absolutely no control over we're so demanding for control we so need to feel like we're in control of our lives instead of the fact that we're just these little creatures on a planet spiraling through space but we want to feel like we've got control and when it's taken away from us I think even going well I regret not doing that is 
trying to grab back a little bit of that control. Absolutely. And one thing that really, really I found quite, it made me feel quite emotional, was the number of women who in their regrets said, well, it's too late for me, but I would have liked to have. And these are women in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm like, it's not too late. I wrote my first book when I was 44. You know, it's not too late. It's never too late. You know, Alice Pang, the 90-year-old stunning model who is the most stunning woman. If you haven't looked her up, look her up. Oh, my God. She is incredible. She didn't start modelling until she was in her late 80s. I mean, when's too late? Who's deciding that? And I say to all my readers and everyone I speak to, use it as your fuel. There is nothing more uh, more energy giving than someone saying to you, even when you're a kid, oh, I don't think you can do that or it's not quite for you. Mm-hmm. Well, you probably can't get to the top or blah, 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 anything. Use it as your fuel. Remember those words, box them down into something the size of a pea, put them in the base of your gut. And on those days when you're flagging, remember what they said, what they thought of you and they were wrong. Get out there, do it, show them, show yourself, because you can do it. What else are you up to? I know the answer to this, and it's very exciting, because it's something that you have been saying you'll do for ages, and you're finally fucking doing it. (laughs) You don't mean cleaning the bath. No, No, you don't mean that. You mean mean I'm writing my memoir, but it's more of a memoir. It's not really a a memoir sounds a bit, but it's more a, (laughs) this is my life. This is what I've learned. This is what I've been through. And maybe it might help you too. And it's all those life lessons about falling apart during the menopause, dealing with my child's attempted suicide, cancer, divorce, step parenting, clay modelling. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. Dog handling. It's just everything I've been through in my life in a nutshell and saying, but the, the, the beauty of it is, and the thing about it is, Mickey, is I'm not unique. It's all of our lives. Where can people find out more about what you're up to, please? Oh, the usuals, you know, socials or websites. I don't know. Amanda Prouse, you can find me. People, do you know what? If anyone wants to find you, they'll find you, won't they? I just think it's all there somewhere on the great ether web. You've made it sound quite sinister, though. <laughs> <laughs> you play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we stare at the back pages of the newspapers numbly as we discuss all things. Wait, where's women's sport gone? Oh, the Olympics are over. And you know, that's really sad. I feel like we needed that, right? Waking up every day to the perpetual stream of news about triumph over adversity, incredible feats of athleticism, the unparalleled joy of a podium of teenagers collecting their skateboarding medals. I could go on. I just loved it. Not the horse punching, for the avoidance of doubt. I did not love that. Another excellent thing about the Olympics, and I do talk about it quite a lot, but it's a point worth reiterating, is the platform it gives to women's sport. I think there's something about the metric of an Olympic medal and the universal acceptance of what that means that puts women on a level playing field. And we don't care who wins the medals, male, female, we just want to win them. And we want to hear those incredible stories of the obstacles people overcame to achieve the pinnacle of sporting success and about the grit and determination that went into their campaign. I've actually really noticed for these games the stark contrast between the sports pages during and after. 
We've seen the return of big names like Charlotte Dujardin, later overtaken by Laura Kenny as the most decorated female British Olympian, both with six medals but five and three gold medals respectively. Then at the same time, a whole new generation of young British talent has entered the national consciousness. So boxer Lauren Price, BMX riders Bethany Shriver and Charlotte Worthington, the Gadarova twins, I could go on. There are so many. The point is... It was amazing to see so many women's names and faces headlining sports pages, and for the most part, for the right reasons. And then, just like that, they've they've vanished. You could be forgiven for thinking the Olympics was a figment of your imagination, a dream of equality which you have simply woken up from. Because what's the top story of the BBC Sport page today? It's basically a morality vacuum, a dick-swinging competition between the royal families of Abu Dhabi and Qatar, and the opposite of inspiring news that super-rich footballer Leo Messi has joined super-rich football club Paris Saint-Germain. I honestly couldn't give even a fraction of a shit about the details of this story. It just it doesn't interest me in the slightest. I simply use it to demonstrate a point. If the Olympics is the best of humanity, then top-tier European football is undeniably the worst. There are four women's sports stories on that homepage today. Two of them aren't actually about sport. Simone Biles changing how we talk about mental health. Some women's football to be shown on the BBC. Mm, We'll fancy that. The others are about New England manager Serena Wiegmann taking charge of her first match with the Lionesses next month and about how London spirit cricket player Deandra Dottin could have played other sports because she was quite good at them. Mm, That's never happened before, has it? Of the top ten stories, three of them are about Messi, six of them are about football, four of them are about cricket. I just find it such an immediate and uninspiring turnaround. It is a bit depressing and sorry to put a downer on things, but it is also within our gift to change the situation. I spoke to now an Olympic medalist, woohoo, Asha Phillip for the podcast back last spring. And she said that she felt in athletics, they don't get anywhere near the same level of interest or spectators outside of the Olympics and urged fans to show up for them more often. So I'm going to do the same now and say, let's get out there and support our women's sport and show broadcasters that there is an audience for it. The Paralympics starts on August 24th, of course, but additionally to that, here's some stuff you can watch if you want to seek out more women's sport. Some of it, there will be tickets available to watch live, as in in person, but that's not always easy to do. So the 100, which is a joint men's and women's cricket franchise, is currently happening and you can watch that across the BBC and Sky. Sky's also showing the women's NBA action. There's not loads of the season left at this stage, but it does go on until late October. In cycling, the women's tour starts on October the 4th and will be available to watch via the Eurosport app and Discovery Plus and of course in football the Women's Super League and Championship start on the first week of September and the last week of August respectively and will also be broadcast across the BBC and Sky and the US Open starts on August the 30th and is available on Amazon Prime. Obviously other sports are available so if I didn't mention your favourite I'm sorry about that but there is only so much time and as you've just seen in the Olympics there's a lot of sport so if you saw something weird and wacky or just ridiculously entertaining at the Olympics Google the relevant governing body and check out the fixtures in that sport they do exist and the information is out there that's all from me for this week I'll be back next time with more women's sport
Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film had me wondering what it is exactly about horn players that women find so attractive? This time, we watched The Commitments, released in America this week in 1991, where it didn't make a huge impression on audiences, becoming only the 80th highest grossing film of the year. Maybe it was the 145 F-words that the film contains or the gloriously niche Irish humour. Either way, fuck them. Because a few <laughs> months later, it was released in the UK and Ireland to a very different reaction. In fact, in Ireland, it went on to become the highest grossing film in history up until that point. Based on the novel by Roddy Doyle, the first in his Barrytown trio, it tells the story of Jimmy Rabbit, played by Robert Arkins, and his attempts to form a soul covers band in the deprived north side of Dublin and then hold them all together as everything descends into rioting and riding. And, I'm going to be honest, I think that's all the plot you need. The screenplay was also written by Doyle with the help of stalwart TV writers Ian Lafrene and Dick Clement and directed by Alan Parker, who had to have had one of the most eclectic careers of any director, given his work includes Midnight Express, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Mississippi Burning and fave of our gen... Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone. The Commitments won four of the six BAFTAs. It was nominated for Best Film, Best Direction, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Editing. It also received an Oscar nomination for Best Film Editing. And it won a Peter Sellers Award for Comedy Writing. The cast were also nominated for a Grammy for the soundtrack, which was a success story of its own, spending 76 weeks in the US Billboard charts and being certified five times platinum in Australia aided in no small part by the phenomenal pipes of lead singer Andrew Strong, who was, Jen, want to have a guess how old he was when filming started on The Commitments? Oh, God, I've no idea. Mickey knows. Mickey. Are you not going to guess? You've got a guess, Jen. I, I don't know. Is, is he younger than just he Just go looks? for it. Just, just pick a number. 21. 16. 16. <laughs> no! <laughs> exactly. Because he, he looks, looks like he's in 40. his 40s. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The then mostly unknown cast members were initially chosen on the basis of their musical ability, with all of the band members playing their own instruments slash singing their own songs, with the exception of veteran Irish stage actor Johnny Murphy as trumpet player and inexplicable Lothario <laughs> Jimmy the Lips Fagan. Both Maria Doyle Kennedy, who plays Natalie, and Glenn Hansard, who plays guitarist Outspan, were already fronting their own bands when filming started. Hansard, fun fact, went on to win an Oscar for Best Song for the film once. The Commitments also spawned a stage musical and a band called Stars from the Commitments, which includes, well, Stars from the Commitments <laughs> and tours regularly. Sales of Doyle's novel leapt as a result, making it his best-selling book. And while he has said that he's not complaining, he's also stated he'd rather it wasn't, as it is far from his best work, and he's right on that. Strong also had some reservations about the runaway success of the film and described the commitments as an albatross to his early music career as it pigeonholed him as a soul singer when, like most teenagers in the early 90s, all he wanted to be was Kurt Cobain. Which I have a lot of sympathy for, especially given if I ever met him, the first thing I'd say is, do the dark end of the street. And the second thing I'd say was, do it again. <laughs> so, 
Mickey, Jen, I know you've seen it before. Mickey, Jen, I know it was your first viewing. I'm going to put my cards on the table and say, flawed though it is, I absolutely love the commitments. But what I will say is I don't know how much I would love it if the commitments had been a jazz band as opposed to a soul band. So musically, how did that sit with your choices? Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, of the genre. So yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's very good. Yes, I enjoyed. The music's incredible. Mm. The phenomenally talented and Andrew Strong's vocals are just insanely good. And it, the music was why I was excited to watch it again. That was about all I liked about it, though, if I'm honest. Yeah. Really? Mm. Yeah, I don't... Well... I don't know. It, nothing else about it blew me away. The music is definitely the strongest part of it. Uh, I was disappointed that Andrea Core didn't get to sing. Um, Andrea Core plays his All sister. of the Cores are in this. All of them, <laughs> oh, in I some just, way or the I other. I just read that her and Jim Core were in it. Jim Core's a uh, mad conspiracy theorist now, just FYI, if anyone wants to look him up. I would say there are bits of this that make me laugh. In fact, it contains one of my favourite jokes in, I think, almost any film in wow. when they're going to the auditions and they're all, all the different styles of band turn up and then somebody turns up playing the fiddle and it cuts to his mum and his sisters in the kitchen, Irish dancing, which will never, never not make me laugh. I do think that it is a film about losers losing. So it is kind of a negative film, but it does still kind of feel upbeat. Tell me why you don't like it, Mick. I didn't like anyone in it. I don't like any of the characters. I feel like the band is set to implode before it's even properly got together. They all start shouting at each other immediately. So I'm not invested in their success because it just seems like a really bad idea. I think the way they talk to Deco and like he's supposed to be this, the most obnoxious Andrew Strong's character is mad because they're all as horrible as he is. Mm. And they never seem to realise that actually without him, the band is nothing because yeah. it's his voice. I also have, I guess, not reservations, but it's interesting that the, I think even the filmmakers know that the music's the strong point. And there's this chat where Jimmy's like, we're in the papers and we're in the same sentence as you 2 and Sinead O'Connor. But they don't write original songs. They're just a covers band. They're mm. a very good covers band. But like the idea that they would ever be hugely famous seems risable. And maybe that's part of the point. But yeah, I just couldn't get invested in any of them. They're all horrible to each other. Yeah, but I, that's kind of the point, though, isn't it? I mean, sure. It doesn't mean I have to like it, though. Fair I don't enough. know. Do you think it is? I, I kind of felt... The, I don't really have any strong feelings on any of them, particularly until the end, where I was a bit like, oh, God. And then they are all being, obviously, horrible to each other. But I kind of thought they were being presented as sort of, like, lovable. I, yeah, I, didn't, I don't, don't think I found them particularly lovable. Well, I think I Jimmy's that... supposed to be. I think Jimmy is supposed to be, like, the one that if you... He's meant to be charming, right? For sure. I, I think he's supposed to be the one that's, like, the normal one, I would say, mm. even though he... Obviously, as a massive fantasist, he's still supposed to be the normal one, I think. You know, like when I say that, um, now let me think of an example, like Patrick Swayze has 80s face, right? Like mm -hmm. really like chiseled and of its time and tanned and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation recently with a friend about 90s face. What is 90s face? And 90s face is just like really normal looking men, basically. Like the, like the sex symbols in the 90s just look like... <laughs> someone you would meet down the pub on a Saturday night. And I thought that Jimmy, 
I was watching it and I thought, Jimmy was probably meant to be like an absolute fox, wasn't he? I bet he was meant to be like the sexy one at the time. I bet he was the one that people fancied. Yeah, I can't, I don't, I can't remember anybody fancying anybody in it, to be honest. They, they just all look like humans, don't they? They just all actually look like human beings. And I found it really weird to see a film where everyone just looks like a normal person. (laughs) Hmm. I hated the way they spoke about women. Yes, that was awful, yeah. So, so much. And I know it's reflective of the Mm. time and it's reflective of bands. What I did really like, but I felt it didn't tell me enough about what I wanted to know, and that's my problem, not the films, is I love the shots of Dublin, of working-class Dublin. Those street shots, I think, are amazing. But, yeah, it didn't feel like it taught me anything or told me anything or made me want to go and do more reading whereas something like and this was what i thought it might be comparable to like the full monty similar sort of industrial Mm. broken down setting i felt like that that film and i might be wrong if we revisited it but told me more about that even though i knew a bit it told me more about it and i guess it's it's the same with all these films of someone bringing a, a gang together a gang of unlikely people come together and form something amazing then it's just like a a, a one-off thing of of joy and the gig at the end is fucking brilliant because they are all really talented but yeah i guess i just found it lacking a point and of course films don't have to have a point but it didn't yeah, do it I, but me. i think that's that's kind of why i like it because it is one of those films and they were quite common in the 90s days and confused is quite similar in that it's not really if you take out the central structure of this, which is that they are a band, or you take out the central structure of dating and views, which is that they're going to a party. It's nothing. It's just people fighting and arguing with each other. But I quite like the nihilism of things that are about nothing. And I think it does... The one character that I think that comes out that has a really succinct storyline and is done really well, and I can't remember her name for the life of me now, is Bronna Gallagher's character. Who's looking after the kids who, of... Uh... Is looking family, after yeah. all of the kids that her mum keeps having and how that pressure cooker house that he goes into for about a minute. You could have done that storyline for longer and it could have taken up more of the film, but actually it's all essentially done in that and in the scene where they have to take the baby mm-hmm. to rehearsal or the little bollocks, as they call him, to rehearsal. So I think her storyline is done really quickly, really well. Yeah, I guess... I, I agree. I thought she was probably the most interesting character. That would be the one that I would pick too. And she's she's cracking. But I, I just didn't find it funny. And I could see where it was trying to be funny. And it was supposed to be funny. And it didn't make me laugh. I, I See, I think it is funny in a very... It's very sort of knowingly ribbing of Ireland funny that I, that I quite enjoy. I like, thought I would love it, Hannah, because it's, it is, it's something that on paper and remembering it is bang up my street. Incredible soul music, Irish setting, love a bit of Roddy yeah. Doyle. I was annoyed with myself that I didn't love it, but I, I just I couldn't love it. Again, I've had a complete blank of what his name is, but I think my favourite character in it is the overzealous bouncer that then becomes the drummer because he actually yeah. really makes me laugh. He's quite Begbie-like. Yeah. The other thing in it that reminded me of, you know, when he says that he basically says that the Irish are the black people of Europe. It reminded me of a tweet by Mick Hucknall from last year, I think, when Mick <laughs> Hucknall rated the uh, the coolness of different ethnicities and places in the world, which was 
very very partridge obviously that did not it didn't come across as partridge uh, what they were saying here but that tweet is well worth digging out if you want to uh, enjoy yourself for five minutes i i that's the bit of the film that i thought if jen's gonna have a problem with part of this film it's going to be of that um no, I d- and i don't I, think I, it no. meant what it meant in 1991 yeah and it's not I mean, original given... to that film either that's been said before right yeah I didn't have a problem with it. I thought about it and I was like, should I have a problem with this by like modern standards? I don't think someone would write that in a film now, particularly. I mean, to be fair, Irish people were generally on the same signs that said no blacks. Exactly, yeah. No, I know, yeah. But where I came down on it was like, it's obviously not meant as an offensive thing. I didn't think it was it's, offensive. It's not minimising black no. struggle. It's no. uh, empathising, sympathising. I never yeah. know which it is, but it's kind of like we've been yeah. through horrible horrible things too which obviously the irish absolutely have no it did give me pause and actually we're going through it in that period like that when when we had the tourists so the 80s let's call it the Mm. late the late 80s when this is set it wasn't a good time for anyone anywhere really no yeah and i i thought the stuff that they said about women was way more jarring and more offensive because I don't, I, and I, I wondered about that as well. Like, oh, is it meant to be a joke? Is it meant to be a joke that they're just like these horny teenagers or whatever? But it just was presented in such a leering kind of way. I, I didn't like that. And the women characters don't get to address it or stand up for themselves. They are literally there to look pretty. Uh, a couple of them have got a really good set of pipes on them and they get a song. But the whole time you see that the rest of the band, particularly Deco, seem to resent that they've got any kind of agency and their own song yeah i really really hated the treatment of women in this successful all round then <laughs> <laughs> the music's amazing though the music is incredible I'm, I'm not angry that the last third of it is a gig <laughs> <laughs> the the music is and that was my point at the top this is really flawed but yeah i do love it and i mm. do wonder how much of that comes from from the fact that the music is amazing and i love soul if it was if this was about a jazz band nope or a country band, no, no way. It just would not do it for me in the same way. Or if they got a lesser singer. I mean, a huge amount of this film's success is on the shoulders of a 16-year-old. It's incredible. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I can't believe he's that young. He looks, yeah, like a middle-aged he's, man. He's <laughs> almost exactly the same age as me, Andrew Strong, to like, uh, like I think, a week or something, because I googled him, and he's like a week older than me or something. He now looks like Rob C. Nesbitt. <laughs> He does. He genuinely looks like Ralph C. Nesbitt. Um, I think he does have a career, doesn't he, musically? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously Maria Dill Kennedy is amazing uh, because she has like a, a music career and a successful acting career. And where does she find the time? <laughs> so, question, I suppose. The commitments, rated or dated? I think it's one of our harder ones again, isn't it? In the... Has it dated? It's dated because it's set in a very specific time. So, yes, it's dated. But I think if you loved the film when it came out, you would still love it now and find it rated. But it wasn't for me. How's that for a kind of not answer? Sorry. <laughs> Wowzers. I think, I yeah, I think I'd probably say that it was an enjoyable enough way to spend two hours. But I do think some of the attitudes or whatever in it do date it by today's standards. Yes. Okay, I'm just going to say rated for the sake of that. I would absolutely watch it again because I, I, I love a bit of soul. It is the finest musical form, I think, probably. It is, but I think I'd rather just listen to the people who originally did the songs doing mm, the songs yeah. on Spotify. I mean, his voice is incredible, it but is. I agree with Jen. I think I'd rather, you know, 
watch the original performances. Of, and like, just jump back 146 times in the background. <laughs> That's just a standard Wednesday, love. <laughs> so what are we watching next week? Get away from her, you bitch. We're going to watch <laughs> 1986's Aliens. Standard issue for all women.